Harry, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You know the show. This is where I sit down with amazing humans, and today's guest is one of those amazing humans. This bio is heavy, so get ready. Uh, she's a writer. She's a renowned speaker, public servant, Pulitzer Prize winner, among so many things. So again, ho- hold on to your headphones for this bio. Uh, and know that we talk about some huge stuff in this episode, like using creativity to solve the world's biggest problems, like storytelling and what a critical skill is in almost any job in the world, why art and our humanity are among the biggest means for connection. That's right. I am talking about Ambassador Samantha Power. Uh, Ambassador Power began her career as a journalist, reporting from places like Bosnia, East Timor, Kosovo, Rwanda, Sudan, Zimbabwe. She was the founding executive director of the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Kennedy School. Then she became a distinguished professor of practice at the Harvard Law School. And from 2013 to 2017, she served as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and a member of President Obama's cabinet. Uh, She served on the National Security Council as a special assistant to the president. And she, you know, wrote her first book again, which won a Pulitzer. She also has several others. Um most recent one just came out uh, this week in paperback called Education of an Idealist. And it was recently named one of the best books of 2019 by the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Economist, Vanity Fair, NPR, Time, and others. And she's about to go before the Senate to get confirmed to run now the largest aid agency in the world. President Biden said when announcing her for the new critical role, She's a leading voice for humane and principled engagement in the world. She will rally the international community and work with our partners to confront the biggest challenges of our time. And and I'm telling you, you are in for a treat. So I'm going to get out of the way. And please welcome to the show, Ambassador Samantha Power. Hey, before we get into the show, I got an announcement. My book, Creative Calling, is more than one year old right now. And it is still crushing. Thanks so much to the support from you, this community. And so I got two, two um, asks. One, if you do not have the book, my goodness, I would invite you to pick it up. Again, it's called Creative Calling, available anywhere books are sold. I put my entire life, all my experience around creativity, entrepreneurship, um, about pursuing your dreams, getting unstuck to do the things that we are put on this planet to do. So if you don't have a copy, please pick it up. And part two, if you do have a copy and right now you're going, yeah, yeah, I, I got it when you first wrote it, whatever, one year ago. Well, if you are in that camp, first of all, thank you. Second of all, it would mean a ton as in the world to me if you left a review at Amazon or wherever you picked up the book. I'm currently sitting at several hundred five-star reviews, which is really helpful for getting the message of the book. In fact, it's the message is my whole life. Creative Live, this podcast, um, the book, it is all sewn together and it would really, really help spread the word, the ideas, the vision that we have for this one precious life and this cool uh, position we find ourselves in being able to uh, not just feel like corks in the tide, but to create the life that we want for ourselves. So if that sounds like something you're into, I would love your support. And in the meantime, I'm going to get out of the way so you can get back to the show. But wanted to say thanks so much. Ambassador Power, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Very grateful to be here. Um, well, to say, uh, well, for, for the first of all, folks who might not be familiar with your work, as I mentioned uh, in our little gathering before the show, the, the audience of our show is largely creators and entrepreneurs 
um, people who identify with trying to develop and take inspiration from a wide swath of folks. Part of my job as the um, host of the show is to curate a really diverse set of voices. And yours is a voice that has um, so much experience and is slightly different than most of the guests, the entrepreneurs say that we have on the show, although you are very entrepreneurial in your own way. You, um, you've been an ambassador and you started off as a journalist. And so for people who are not familiar with your work, if you could help us just, you know, ground us in time and space with your personal experience and uh, maybe uh, intro how you got to where you are today. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, well, first I should say that I'm an immigrant to America from Ireland. Uh, I came when I was nine years old, not by myself. My mother came uh, wanting, there was no divorce in Ireland back then. Uh, the Catholic church was very influential and my mother and my father unfortunately were splitting up. So my mother came with my younger brother and me uh, with a fellow Irish doctor who she would go on to marry later uh, when she'd been in this country long enough. And we lived in Pittsburgh and then I went to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. I was into sports like that. You just, if you heard my name in my school or in any of the environments I found myself in, I was either playing sports or talking about sports and I was apolitical. My, my, again, as newcomers to this country, I wouldn't have known the difference between a Democrat or a Republican. And I probably, because I was Irish, I think Irish kids have a decent grasp of geography in their DNA, uh, because I think there's some sense in the bloodstream that you might have to leave someday, uh, dating many centuries back. So, you know, even though I was not, I was, a, I was a decent student, but even though my focus was on sport, I would have had some sense that there were things happening out in the world, particularly back in my home country of Ireland, where my family still were. And, um, but if you'd asked me in college, what I would go on to do, I'd say, well, I've, failed to become an Olympiad or a professional athlete. So I guess I'm going to be a sportscaster. And the summer after my first year at Yale, uh, I was interning in the sports department uh, of the CBS affiliate in Atlanta, Georgia, where I'd gone to high school. And I was taking notes on a what I thought was the most important thing in the world that day, which was an Atlanta Braves game. Uh, and as I was taking notes in order to cut the sports highlight for the evening news, uh, the footage from Tiananmen Square was beamed in on the CBS news feed, which I would not, again, as a matter of course, have been watching, but for the serendipity of having to cut the sports highlights. And what I saw in that footage was kids my age, it was after my freshman year, I was 18 years old, um, getting mowed over by tanks, uh, kids who'd been protesting for weeks and actually been allowed to protest prior to that point kids jumping onto their bicycles and draping the wounded over the handlebars and so forth. It was just an arresting set of images and it wasn't a movie. It was real. And it didn't make me say one day I'm going to be UN ambassador. I'm going to be standing up for human rights. I mean, that would have been like saying one day I'm going to live on Mars. I mean, it was so far from my, my life's experience so far from where I would have had even a, thimble's worth of confidence uh, to be able to think about going. But it did, it is a, you know, I, I can kind of feel it viscerally even to this day, which which gives you a sense of, of what it even meant at the time. You know, sometimes we go back and we find out of the, the haze of the highlight reel, you know, these events and maybe superimpose a, a meaning onto them. But I definitely talked to friends at the time and said, 
this is galvanizing. I, I have to know more about what's going on in the world. I went back to college, became a much more serious student. I still had a sports show with a group of guys at night uh, where we sounded off with big opinions, sort of a precursor to talk radio, I'm embarrassed to say. Not of the podcast vintage uh, or, or uh, depth. Um, but after college, I was by then much more informed about events in the world. The Cold War had ended. I graduated in 1992. The Persian Gulf War had occurred and these big coalition had been mobilized to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And it felt like the rules of the road might actually exist, that human rights might actually be enforced and promoted. And then there was this conflict in the former Yugoslavia that was kind of cutting in the opposite direction where people were being ethnically cleansed and it was heartbreaking. And, but also just, again, kind of seemingly counter historical, like it was like a relic, it seemed. Now, little did I know then that in some ways it's a preview for some of the sectarianism and extremism and tribalism that we see even plaguing our own society. At the time, it felt like a last gasp of a group of people who hadn't gotten the memo that things were about to get better and that liberal liberalism was going to prevail worldwide and all of that. But because I had been a sports reporter and I'd covered the college volleyball team and basketball team, uh, and because I had no other skills to actually be able to help anybody, but because I was now open, my, my, my innards were kind of open to taking in what was happening there. I looked to, to find a way to make a difference because it was, I mean, this was refugees. One in two people in Bosnia were displaced and sent into Europe. And again, we'd had such high hopes for what Europe would become after the Cold War ended. And so unable to work for a humanitarian aid agency or really do anything that, that felt tangible to be of use, um, I thought to myself, well, I, I can write a lead. I can write 500 words or 800 words. And, and maybe what I really need to do is get a deeper education about what could make people turn on each other like this. And with that, I got an agreement from U.S. News and World Report, uh, you know, one of the, the glossy magazines with Time and Newsweek at the time, to just take my what were called collect calls. You remember collect calls to be able oh, yeah. to charges. That was like a big deal in those days. So to get an editor to agree, yes, we'll take your collect call. Um, you can bill us. That was like hitting the jackpot. So I went over, and I I had never really reported on anything other than basketball, baseball volleyball crazy and but the community of people who were there were young people like me who were equally horrified and they took me under their wing and kind of taught me the ways of the the ways of the road you know let me be in their armored cars because I had no resources because I was just a freelancer and really educated me so that was the beginning of what I call the education of an idealist I guess but just learning the tradecraft of how to be a war correspondent I couldn't have learned that on my own. And and it's, as you know, journalism has a reputation for being so cutthroat and and that people would be sort of kissing up or and kicking down. And it wasn't like, it was, it was amazing. It was mainly women, actually young women who had gone and were similarly freelancers, but they were freelancers, but they were further along in their evolution. So, so that was where I cut my teeth. I learned, I was there for two and a half years. I learned about what, can cause ethnic conflict. I learned about the UN and the limits of its response. 
I learned about the solidarity of working in a community, which I had never experienced before. It was a lot like a team sport in, in some ways, which is not what journalism is often uh, accused of being. And But I also, I guess, experienced the sort of hollow sense that you have when you write something that is searing and you feel it's kind of landing on deaf ears. And so I suppose if Tiananmen and seeing those images from June of 1989 in Beijing was like a first inflection point, a second was actually succeeding in becoming someone who wrote for the Washington Post and The Economist. And I had, you know, this amazing set of relationships and ended up on the front page. And and yet having a sense that the people in Washington who were reading these stories, they they may very well have been moved. They may I may very well even have succeeded from a literary sense of bridging these distances, but the the reporting I was doing was grimmer every day. You know, the war was just getting worse for the people that I was coming to care an awful lot about because they were right, they were my neighbors and, and my friends. And so I left Bosnia uh, before the war ended, just before, and went to law school, which go figure. Uh, but I, I had some vague idea that I would go like hunt down the bad guys and the Hague, the, tr- the crimes tribunal had just been set up and I could be a prosecutor. But instead, when I was in law school, I wrote a paper for a class on American responses to genocide in the 20th century, 20 page paper that became a 50 page paper that became an 80 page paper that eventually five years later became a book. And one senator named Barack Obama, who had just been elected uh, in sort of in 2006, is that right? No, sorry, uh, 2004, he was elected and took, took office into early 2005. He read the book and he's like, all right, wise, wise gal, uh, you got all these big ideas. I'm new to Washington. I care a lot about thinking differently about foreign policy. Come join me and let's let's figure some of this stuff out together. And so that was uh, a major change in my in my life's journey and, and brought me to Washington and ultimately culminated in me being U.S. ambassador to the U.N. That was a long account this, of, a, this, of a winding road. I apologize. No, just please, Smith. This is why people tune in because they don't want the short version. They want the long version. And uh, you're the, the I mean, you to be fair, you just sort of I guess traversed like 25 years, right? <laughs> so that you did a great job. And but there's so much to unpack there for uh, our listeners and watchers and um a couple of places I'd like to to cut in if I may. And one of them starts with you talked about um being an outsider early on uh, when you you know first went there and didn't know the craft and you had just enough it sounds like from your sports journalism it just enough to um, be dangerous and not enough to, you know, do the job, to excel at the job and to say, I think your words were felt like an outsider or new to the role or whatever. Um, I was hoping you could, because there's so many people are watching and listening that they are moving into a new area of life where they are an outsider or there's imposter syndrome or um, they need to seek mentorship or guidance or be a part of a community. What role I just sort of triangulate a couple of things like mentorship, um, imposter syndrome, feeling like an outsider, you know, what role did that play in shaping who you are? And if you could give any advice on how you like tactically, how did you start to 
I don't know if the right word is assimilate or um, or join that community and learn and grow in your craft. Maybe I'll go back in time just to, to when I came to America and I hadn't even thought of the analogy until you posed the question in the way that you have. But when I moved to America as a kid, I noticed that everyone around me was uh, talking about baseball. I, I had moved to Pittsburgh. The Pirates were winning the World Series. The Steelers were about to win the Super Bowl. And I think just reflexively as a kid, you're like, okay, what's the currency? This is the currency. And and so if I flash forward to being in Bosnia, I think that I felt completely like an outsider. I mean, from the basics of being asked by National Public Radio not long after I arrived to do a spot and saying, yes, absolutely, I'll call you back in a few minutes and I'll do the spot hanging up and saying to my closest friend there at the time, Laura, what's a spot? <laughs> you know, spot has, it has actually a regular English language meaning. Um, and so I know what a spot is, but what, what's this kind of spot? And, and, you know, what is the arc of it? And then being so embarrassed to like try it out in front of her and, and, you know, afraid that I'd be, I'd be shunned or that I'd be outed. You know, that's how we mainly feel when we're new to something and not at all confident. And, but what I, what I thought to myself is, you know, what, what can I bring? I mean, what do I know that these people don't know? These people have been covering this war. Maybe they started covering the Croatian war and they've been in Bosnia from the beginning. I was a year, came like 15 months into the Bosnian war. And you can imagine you're sitting around late at night and they're drinking their whiskey and you're drinking yours. And you feel like they deserve their whiskey. Like they've been here for 15 months living under siege in Sarajevo. They've now out, let's say, in a, in a more peaceful part of the region and, and entitled to their drink, you know, what the hell have I done? And one of the things I noticed was that most of them were very dependent on interpreters, local interpreters who became their close friends. Um, and these were more like partnerships, but I had before coming, I had started to learn to seek to learn at least server Croatian. I don't have a gift for languages, but I do have a gift for stubbornness. <laughs> so I was, I was like, all right, I'm going to be the person who they don't have to pay. He's going to be the colleague. He's never going to be great. Like I'm, it's never going to be, you know, TV interview quality translation, but maybe if I study my flashcards long enough, if I nerd out on this language, I can get by and I can thus when we're on the road and we have a flat tire, God forbid, in a, in a war zone, I can be the person engaging about how to get the flat tire fixed, or I can get through an interview depending on, you know, the level of education of the person I might be speaking with. And, and so I dug into that and I dug into history and these are more, this is more a kind of rational answer than a spiritual one, I suppose. But, but it really was about, you know, how can I feel like I'm not just a hanger on or a freeloader for people who know what they're doing? Cause I knew I was there not only taking notes on my interviews, but taking notes on the way others were taking notes. In other words, I knew what I didn't know. And I, I do think that that's, that has been a strength. <laughs> that's a weird strength, I suppose. But I am always acutely aware, at least of, of the outer bounds of, of, of the limits of, of what I know. And so that sort of not being afraid to ask questions or to appear, there's a vulnerability in asking questions. There's a vulnerability in, 
admitting uh, the novelty of, of, of something and not kind of faking experience. And, and I was, I made myself very vulnerable in those days, but at the same time, I worked at trying to be in a position to offer something. And I, I, I think in a way, my, but my friends from that time would just say, you didn't need to offer anything. You were just one of us. Like we, we had started 15 months before and been equally clueless. Um, we didn't, we didn't need you to interpret, but it's all psychological in my own head. I just felt so much better when, when I felt like I was giving something back to this community. Uh, I, I love that answer, not only because it plays into a personal belief of mine, but because it is heartfelt and earnest and vulnerable, but there's some really, um, I think some, some precise language that I want to try and attach to it. Um, first of all, you said earlier, you know, this is in a way the education of an idealist. And uh, again, for those new to you and your work, uh, I want to say congratulations on your book titled, said uh, earlier phrase, The Education of Ideal an Idealist, your memoir, which was a, a, a New York Times bestseller, has just come out in paperback. Um, so A, congratulations. And for those folks who are new to your work, I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, page turner and so much history and self-reflection and humility, humanity. That's just, it's incredible. So um, first of all, congratulations. But if we think about this what I hear in your voice is this idealism. I can go there. I can, what I'm hearing also is deconstructing the world around you. And this idea of, uh, I think of it in two steps and I want to share this and then have you reflect and see if I'm off on the mark or off the mark and what you would editorialize. So in, in deconstructing what you said is the currency of others, there's almost a, a humility and a respect for those who'd come before you, the work that they'd done, but also you it seemed like you did that as a uh, a way to connect and and be a part of something but there's some switch in there that you flipped and you started to do your own thing you started to take the have a set of, a sense of confidence or i'm curious this is where i want you to to pick up my mm -hmm. narrative here and say what was it because you, you there's the humility to fit in and then there's also has to be some sort of desire to stand out and you can't do those things at the same time. You did one first. Where did that come from? And if you think of who we're talking to today, the community that, that listens to this, like that is a really important sort of skill or self-awareness. And it's seemingly in the story that you just tell it, it's almost, it was intuitive to you. So pick up where I, I, and again, or throw rocks at this concept that I'm introducing <laughs> here, but well, you know, I think so. What I, I've become familiar in later years uh, with the idea of being, and the expression I keep hearing is mission driven, right? Mission driven. And that can mean a whole host of things, and it can be a blinding way to live in the world, in, insofar as you can lose perspective. And indeed, if I think of myself in my <laughs> early 20s, maybe with a sizable dose of sanctimony uh, about what so-and-so in Washington should do about this or that or the other thing. Um, you know, I may have been, I may have been in the mission driven to a fault kind of category, but I would, I was very actually motivated by, I mean, it just sounds again, sort of cheesy if nothing else, but just 
it was so horrible what was happening uh, in this place at that time. In some ways, it's a reflection of the kind of relatively privileged life that I, that I had led, you know, being from Ireland, coming to America, being embraced ultimately, you know, by my classmates, having these educational opportunities, but to go from, you know, being a Yale college student to being in Sarajevo as people are just being targeted because of their ethnicity, that wasn't supposed to be happening anymore in Europe, right? Like we'd all read Elie Wiesel and we've, read about Anne Frank and we pledged never again in our political culture and our popular culture. Schindler's List had just come out the year that I would end up moving to, to Bosnia. And I'm, I'm mentioning this, which is a little bit of a tangent from your question, because I do think it, it rendered less salient for me the question of, am I standing out? And it, and by the way, I'm not sure my colleagues would even agree with what I'm saying here, you know, because it rendered way more salient for me. Am I writing for publications that are going to be read by people who can make a difference in the lives of people here? And that's so presumptuous for sure, pompous potentially as well. But it was, I was, I was literally like, this was, you know, the internet was there, but it wasn't the same today. Where like today I could write for the Boston Globe and I could just know you know, that if, if I broke a story and uncovered a mass grave, or if I wrote a very compelling, you know, it would, it would sort of circulate in the, in the corridors of power. Maybe you can assume that today. I think you can, but then it was much more siloed, the media environment. And so I wanted to be a freelancer for the Washington Post. I wanted to, when I saw, you know, kids who were jumping rope in a playground and, and picked off by snipers or by shellfire and I wrote that story and wrote about the impotence of the UN peacekeepers who were there or the policymakers behind them. I, I really wanted President Clinton to be reading that article. Like I was, and that was a little weird, right? That was, that was not all that, I mean, others were very moved and had come to the former Yugoslavia because of, they were, they was sort of like the Spanish civil war back in the day it was, it was, it, it had that same kind of magnetic pull on people who wanted to tell the stories of people who were voiceless. But I went that next to that next step of, you know, I wonder if the assistant secretary for Europe is, is really like that, like again, nerding out on, on the other side of it about what was happening back in Washington. And so why is that an answer to your prior question? Because I have found over my career and I and I'm thinking about this now as I as I contemplate you know a new a new job of even greater ambition arguably than anything I've ever done in terms of ambition for impact in the world, and I have a set of hiring decisions that will be before me soon, and I've just learned that those people that are that can articulate the mission that moves them most, the hunger they have to acquire the skills for lack of a better word, to figure shit out, <laughs> to be able to get things done on behalf of what, like what, what gets them out of bed in the morning, that is the most adaptive um, professional qualification that I can find. Or it's at least the chapeau under which a lot of those other, um, you know, kind of skills uh, can fall or, or it's what motivates, again, the acquisition of those skills. So, so I think that my my drive, which to others might have just looked like she wants to be in the Washington Post, <laughs> you know, she's 
not only is she one of us, you know, now she's insisting on, on, you know, sucking up to get that freelance arrangement, you know, or whatever, however it might've looked. It, 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 when I look back at myself, it, it was so kind of innocent and clueless in its way in believing that if, if, as if President Clinton didn't have access to all the, the most important information in the world already. I mean, it was, it was delusional, you know, that if I only wrote that story in that way, that that could kind of change the calculus. So, but I, but I do mention it because boy, if you come and I say this to young people, cause now I'm back on a campus and in a classroom, you know, if you go from, instead of, I believe in social justice or, I, I want to promote human rights or I, you know, want to deal with sy- systemic racism and can drill into that and be really specific about your slice of that. I do find that that ends up being um, a recipe for, you know, just instrumentalizing those skills where you're just like, okay, I need to learn how to fundraise now. Damn it, that book that would have seemed really boring if I I would have ordered it from Amazon no matter what. But, you know, I got my Twitter account, I got the phone, I got my kids, I got like many things are going to keep me away from reading that book. But if I have a mission to raise money around Black Lives Matter in this moment or, uh, you know, to deal with the migration or displacement crisis at the southern border in this moment, my motivation, the stickiness, right, of a mission where you then attach the skills that you just need on the, but, but you're, you're almost mindless about acquiring them because it's so driven by what's motivating you in the first place. That is so well articulated. And it, it mirrors an experience that I had in the, my first time I really felt like I wanted to learn something. There's school and there's getting a good grade, good or passing grade and the things that others want you to do. And then there is my desire to say, learn how to be a photographer, how to tell stories. And the, it, it was a moment of, it was an awareness moment for me. Like, not only does this not sound like work, but this is required. This is like, this is the thing standing between where I am right now and where I want to be. And, you know, if we go back to the title of your book, The Education of Idealist, I think there's this, that is sort of baked into that thought that, sh- that you shared and it is idealism, but yet here you are, you know, not only have you not been in service of that mission, but you, <laughs> it could be fair to say that you blew that original ambition out of the water. And so, you know, help me synthesize for people at home, like, how important that idealism is because we're often told to give up on our dreams. And, you know, maybe when you were there in Bosnia, your colleague, instead of telling you what a, a spot was, could have just rolled their eyes and said, you know, what are you doing? You, you don't belong on, you know, in PR or, or even if they just made a joke and didn't give you the information or, you know, it's hard to, and this, this is also from, from even neutral parties. They might not, not, want you to succeed, but they're like, eh, you know, who, who, you know, who are you to fill in the blank? And I believe that that's a huge part of our culture. And we want to surround ourselves with people that lift us up and empower us and engage us. And even if those people aren't there that you, what, what can you do for yourself? Acknowledging the privilege port that you said earlier, like if you're in a community where that's not, um, popular, then it's, you have an extra gravitational pull that you need to, to, you know, escape velocity or whatever. But you know, speaking very specifically, you are an idealist and yet you've been able to accomplish so many of the things, maybe even outperform 
your own idealism, given the role that you're stepping into. We can get into that in a little bit, but how, you know, what advice would you give to others that might ha- might feel disproportionately that, that gravitational pull that, that sort of, um, media, you know, this, like the beige, the mediocrity that for better, or ar- I would argue for worse is pervasive in our culture. You escaped that. You remained an idealist. You wrote the book with that title. You clearly living it. What advice would you give to others who are contemplating it, but afraid? Yes, it's a great question. So first of all, what I would say is that um, my idealism really is, is, is not grand, right? Um, insofar as I think it's a, a general sense. Working the for the world, president. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll come, I'll, I'll come to what, how okay. all this crazy stuff happened in the end. But, but it's a pretty simple, like, I think, I think, you know, almost irrespective of one's line of work or even increasingly see that get, get with, with younger and younger people, you know, even high school students and middle schoolers, just a basic sense that the world is not optimized. <laughs> we're not in, we're, we can do better. Right. And, and then, a related sense, and this is where people I think stumble and I have stumbled through my life, which is, and I can, not even that I can do something about it, but I'm going to try to do something about it. And the it is not saving the whole world. It's some sliver and, and like next to the problems of the world, arguably minuscule, minuscule sliver. And so there are two things in what I'm saying. I mean, it, it is that sometimes I think that you know, even when when you you look at the the trajectory of of the career that I've been fortunate enough to have, it, it, if I had set out and said, as I was sort of joking that I never would have in in the moment where I first sort of got a little reoriented toward caring about international affairs or human rights back during the Tiananmen time, if I had said to myself, my goal is to become UN ambassador, first of all there in madness lies like anybody who sets their goal around a title or a position forget about it i mean you you've increased the utter impossibility the odds of of that ever happening have plummeted and 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 i have you know young people come up to me is like i want i you know i love your life it's incredible and i i also want to change the world how do i become un ambassador you know one day i'm like no no don't do that and it's not just don't do that because you sound like an asshole it's it's don't do that because then you won't, you won't, it's what you were talking about. It, you won't have the, the stores of experience and frankly, the ever incrementally expanding skill set to make your difference. Right. And so, so my idealism again is more, it's, it's sort of at a general level. And had I set my sights, you know, on ending the war in Bosnia single-handedly, I probably would be a sportscaster now. Right. Because I would have been that would have been a crushing defeat. It wouldn't it wouldn't have happened or I certainly wouldn't have had as a kid, you know, a huge impact in in events there. And so this is the important point is that I think and I don't know why I've been instinctively that this has been my approach, but I have always set the immediate goal in a rather modest way. And I have this 
sort of way I describe it in the book that I, I it's sort of a, a term that I've come to, to use or phrase that I've come to use for it, which is the X test, right? Where you're at a crossroads, something in you is, it's like things are a little off. You've either exhausted what you can learn or you've exhausted what you can contribute or maybe, you know, somebody's driving you crazy, whatever, you, something's a little off or you're seeing something on the horizon, maybe something on the news that you want to do something about. If you set your objective to be fixing that thing that you've seen on the news, it's going to be really hard to take that leap, right? And to and to just go and that's just again a degree of gumption that most of us do not have, right? That I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to go fix this problem. If by contrast you say Okay, the problem, for example, that, that animates me a lot is refugee, the refugee crisis, the largest displacement around the world than at any point since the Second World War. So I, I could say I want, you know, the last administration, let's say, to change its immigration policy, or I want governments around the world to give more money to UNHCR so there'll be more food and shelter and education for these folks. Um, but that said, it's like, Am I going to really, as a private citizen now, no longer, am I, am I going to have it within my reach to be able to make that kind of difference? Probably not. And I know that even modest success is fuel. It's fuel for, again, an incrementally enhanced set of objectives. So instead, to simply say, I'm going to adopt one refugee family, and damn it, I'm going to help those kids get through high school... And I'm going to make sure that they see a friendly and a welcoming side of America. And, and so the X test for me is when you're at a crossroads to say to oneself, if all I get out of doing this next thing is X, will it have been worth it? And so in that, in the refugee context, if all I do is help three people who Syrian American Syrians who come to America in this horribly inhospitable time, well, damn that, like, that'd be a good way to spend a year or a week or a life, frankly, to help three people. And so even then I was in government, I was in the cabinet of the president of the United States, that still ends up being a really useful way of embarking on risk because it's kind of self-protective. It acknowledges one's own kind of fear of those big gaps between one's goals and one's, you know, what one delivers it, it, you can get build teams more easily around it. You can kind of meet people where they are, where they're thinking, oh, Samantha's got some crazy idea again about how we're going to fix this or that. No, it's just say, hey, hey team, you know, if all we do is this, we, we, we launched when I was UN ambassador, a campaign to free 20 female political prisoners around the world. And when you think about America, the superpower, the idea that our ca- campaign would be just that, that's so small, it's so modest. And yet, oh my God, the young foreign service officers and the civil service officers, when the first woman got out of jail and was reunited with her family, I mean, you would have thought we'd, you know, resolved every conflict on planet earth for the morale boost. And yet when I set out to, to launch that campaign, I didn't say to them, we're going to get these women out of jail. Even that seemed too ambitious. What I said is think of how their families will feel if they know that the United States is standing with their wife or mother or daughter and, and just the signal that that was in that show of solidarity, think of the ways in which we can use these single cases to expose 
systemic injustice where there ha- there's been impunity and and you know that's that's a good in its own right. So so to, so the idealism is there and the kind of grand ambition is out there. Yes, I want to change the world, but but I just I know that world changing happens in the tiniest bites just as a practical matter, but but also that to 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 attach yourself to something small that is actually within your grasp and that can be achieved can end up kind of weirdly counterintuitively being more motivational, more easy to get people past that precipice where they're thinking, I want to try to make a difference, but nah, I don't really think I can. I'm not one of those people. I'm not a self-described idealist. I'm just a person. Right. And you say, we don't like, let's not define idealism in this, you know, galaxy altering way, let's define it as, is there anything out there you'd like to see different? Is there some slice of it that together we could, we could make a dent in? Like, let's, let's see if we can articulate that. That there, I'm going to try and put that into one phrase that I've used in the show. And that's that you don't actually have to, to understand and know the whole staircase. You just have to take the first step and the, at the, the first step reveals the second or the third. And it's your narrative around that is so powerful because it's actionable. There's so many people who are listening right now who would be paralyzed with the thought of trying to end the conflict in Bosnia or land on the moon if you're, or Mars, if you're Elon Musk, or, um, I remember, so Cory Booker is a friend who's been on the show before and Senator Booker at the time was the mayor of, um, of Newark, New Jersey. And he talked about fixing potholes and you could at him on Twitter. If you'd see a pothole, you take a picture of it and he would say on it and how that small, incredibly tangible act of repairing potholes that citizens, individual citizens would reach out to their mayor and the, he'd put in place of the, the, the mechanism to repair those in like 24 hours, how powerful that was. You talked about galvanizing others, building teams. And I'm wondering if that has that been this, this fix or, or help three families, has that been, uh, a part of your journey in all of these different disciplines? Cause right now we're talking about the crisis in Bosnia, help one Bosnia family. And then, you know, you're seeing women being released from, from prison, et cetera. Have you applied that to other areas? This just see the first step. And then suddenly you find yourself in the president's cabinet. <laughs> is this a is this a known function? Well, let, uh, let me let me describe it. Let let me answer in an immensely parochial and self involved way, which is so. And again, this is this is the answer to the people who want to leap from um from A to Z, right? Without mm-hmm. or like from the bottom of the staircase to the top of the staircase. To take your metaphor, but you know, every career crossroads that I've been at, I think that I made the sort of on paper kind of wrong decision (laughs) insofar as if my goal had been to become UN ambassador, I did the thing that would seem seemingly have taken me. That wasn't my goal. I would have never dared to even think of that, but, but I mean, just again, taking the top of the staircase and making it sort of titular positional in that way. So, you know, graduated from college, 
and had a lot of opportunities back in the day um, and decided I'm going to go be a freelance war correspondent because I have such vast experience covering the basketball and volleyball teams. I'm going <laughs> to go make it as a war correspondent. Then I actually get the string after two years writing for The Economist in the Washington Post, which would have been, you know, as a somebody who had become a bit of a foreign policy nerd, just so thrilling to me. And I'm there and it's working and I have a chance potentially to go back and work for these publications and become a full-fledged phone correspondent, not, um, you know, a freelancer. I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to go to law school. And then I'm in law school and I end up through serendipity mainly, but partnering with somebody and we set up a human rights center together. I end up getting uh, to teach at Harvard's Kennedy School, which is all these young public servants and incredible sort of idealistic culture, but also through teaching, you learn so much yourself. I have health insurance. My mother's over the moon. Finally, I have health insurance. And then this, I meet this first term senator named Barack Obama. And yeah, you could say, okay, that that was a good career move, Samantha, but he didn't have a job to offer me. He didn't have anything. You know, he was building out his staff and he'd already filled the, the key jobs. And I said, well, why don't I come and Effect that my book had come out and the book had done well and been read by a lot of people. And, and, you know, I could have been all, you know, haughty and said, I need this and I need it, but like, I wasn't going to do that. I said to myself, what's the worst thing that can happen if I go down and work with him in his Senate office? Um, I, the absolute, the X test, right. If all I get out of this is I learn about the role that the Congress can play as a check and balance on the executive branch and what it does in foreign policy. I mean, this is my career. So I'm learning more and more about foreign policy as I, as I grow. And if all I do is get an up close understanding of the limits of congressional oversight and the possibilities, irrespective of what Barack Obama does with his time or his life, like that, will, that's better than going to graduate school and, and learning that. And, um, and lo and behold, it is Barack Obama. I could learn, about how to be a better public speaker at, at the bare minimum. So I'm like itemizing these tiny, you know, people are thinking, you're going to go work for the future of the Democratic Party. He's going to be president one day. And I'm like, I think I can learn to be a better public speaker. You know, like, in other words, to just define it, it's so self-protective. It's kind of ridiculous. And then, of course, he, despite giving me assurances that he has no intention of running for president anytime soon, and what kind of guy would come and be there for two years and then run for president, uh, he would end up running for president. And similarly, you know, as I thought about going into government and having been an activist and been a journalist, you know, if all I achieve is be that voice in the room, standing up for people who are not in those meetings in the situation room, I can't guarantee they're going to be huge outcomes. I mean, there's a lot of gravity in American foreign policy that cuts in favor of military assistance and, you know, not scrutinizing some of the relationships that we have around the world. And it's hard to elevate sexual violence against women and girls in the halls of power. And I, you know, I'd written a book on how hard it was, but if all I did was just, I was in those meetings, raising that voice that someone out there would know that, 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 that voice was there, that was a kind of low bar to clear. And so, so, you know, these things have come along and they look you know, increasingly grand and, um, you know, and, and as if they, and there is a stature associated with them, but at each instance, I'm, and I'm, as I approach this new, um, mission potentially that I will have in this world, 
I'm trying to think what's my X test. You know, if all I do is what will, will it have been worth it to the institution? Will it have been worth it to the people who are uh, placing faith in me? Will it have been worth it to my family and my kids who are now it's going to be going back into the 24 seven national security? You know, what kind of better world am I, am I leaving in being a less available mom than I might've been the last four years? And so I, I find it really helpful to just, you kind of define a way uh, or, or, or you can cut, it just kind of create a minimalist account of what success can look like that then gets you up to that second stair. And then you're in, as you say, and you look around and you think, okay, um, that actually worked. And now look at all these collateral things that never even occurred to me. I would get out of this. I'm kind yeah, of glossing hard parts, right? <laughs> like there's a lot of, you know, the, you, the other thing about being on the front end is you don't know, you anticipate, bad things that you may not, that may not even happen. And you don't anticipate bad things that, that, that do happen or, or challenges that do happen. But even that, once you're in it, once you've taken that leap, you're in the scrum and, and you learn about yourself. If you're lucky that you'll either figure it out. Or there'll be someone around who has figured it out, who can share that with you. And I think that's the other thing as you get older and more experienced is it's less that you get a higher opinion of yourself than that you just learn about your own resilience and also that it isn't just you, right? That you are a part of institutions and communities that are larger than you. And so you don't have to just go into facing a challenge and think, can I do this? You can instead think, you know, can I, uh, can I quickly find the people who are mission driven, who will also not rest, uh, you know, until we we find at least a pathway to some impact, even if we can't find like a highway to to the kind of major impact that we wish we could make. Yeah, it's, it's like the goal isn't avoiding mistakes because mistakes are certain. It's really about error recovery and adaptability, and right. sort of you continually are putting yourself in the space over and over. Um, one thing that struck me while you were talking there is um, the concept of intuition. And I was wondering if you could share with me what role intuition has played in your career arc, um, you know, through the lens of your humanity, through the lens of your career path, through the lens of your professional ambition. Like how, what role has, I'm, I'm fascinated by this concept and which is why I, I want to ask it. Uh, it's a regular, regular on the show, but what role has that played for you? I think every one of those junctures that I've mentioned to you, and now the one I find myself at, I, I would re have referred to it as my gut, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's and I think it I think it's the same thing. Um, just some kind of I think I used the word before magnetic pull in a certain direction. Now, what I will say though is that I think that we can become that we are the friends of our own pool of intuitions <laughs> in this way, in that, you know, in the periods where I have made time to read and, uh, and to connect with other people, my intuitions get a hell of a lot sharper, <laughs> right? In the yeah. times when I'm, doom scrolling as I might've been for much of the last four years. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
your intuitions can lie a little bit fallow. You know, they, they, uh, my, my intuition evolves, um, in a more, in a more pointed and directional way when I have, when, when there are a number of inputs. Um, and so, you know, I, even, even as I've thought about the prospect of, you know, if I had the chance to serve again, um, you know, serve this country, be be out there in the world um trying to harness the tools of the US government and 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 promote american values and interests if i had the chance how would how would i weight that decision against the 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 feeling that my kids are just getting used to me being around and especially with covid of course more around more than they ever imagined um you know 11 and 8 year old and i and for really for the whole period that I've been not in government, I've been thinking, what, what will it be like? And I've really tried to stay in the present and just say this great expression, don't borrow trouble from the future. Right. And it is trouble, right? Because it's an actual, you can't, you can gloss it as best you can, but it's a, there are trade-offs involved in all big commitments in our lives. And, but I've, the reason I was able to actually largely with exceptions, but largely heed the don't borrow trouble from the future and don't import a dilemma before it is presented. Um, I mean, you know, somebody different had to win the presidency. That new president had to actually call on me and be interested in me serving. That's, that's two really big uh, ifs. And, and, but what I knew about myself was until the decision was before me, the set of variables and the and the kind of ecosystem in which I was sort of trying to listen to my gut and trying to find my intuition, I, you you can't make that up and you can't project what that's going to be in the future. You can't project you know, what your mother's going to say to you and how it's going to land and and you know the the team of people that you might have the chance to work with that you might have imagined it be one and it be the other. It could be better. It could be worse. And I think just that it's really hard to maintain that discipline. It, it's certainly hard to not borrow trouble from the future. That's impossible, you know, for most of us to do. But the discipline of saying, you know, just that intuition is not static. And at the same time, you know, just as we would if we were planting a garden, you know, you want to give it the sunlight, you want to give it the water, you want to, you want to, you want to give it the care, you want to get, you want to make sure that that you're allowing just a set of, I don't know what the right word is even, like inputs or, or set of voices and set of incommensurate kind of considerations to be part of that swirl. And, and for me, that requires not, not being on my phone and, you know, kind of allowing your intuition to breathe, but, but not to think that it all has to be self-generated. And I, I think that, as I talk to you, is kind of a recurring theme, right? It's that when you're younger, you think everything is going to come from you that you're just going to look in and you're going to know, you know, that's the man I want to marry. And that's the career I'm going to want to pursue. But, but in fact, if you're just getting lots of exposures, you know, I mean, hopefully not, not too many in the romantic domain, you know, to, to find the right guy, but maybe if that's what it takes, that's what it takes too. I mean, for me, that's what it took to, you know, it, it that, that, that you kind of ripen, you know, into that knowledge, right? That it, that in the end, when it's the right time to make the decision, if you've 
created that open space and, and, you know, solicited views that it all kind of churns inside you. And then lo and behold, you have an intuition about what the right thing is and how to balance things that on a checklist, it's just two in the head. It's two system two, you know, this is, these are system one decisions and, but it takes a discipline to create a space for them to, to surface, I think. Yeah, this intuition develops through action, not through just intellect. You, you don't develop right. your intuition by sitting on the couch. You talked about adventure and going forward and experiencing, connecting with others. I think that is a, it's sort of like an unsaid um, in our culture that that's part of how you develop your intuition and people, uh, uh, you know, I just having asked that question to so many, um, thank you for your answers, pretty thoughtful and inspired. Um, but do you remember so- when we were younger when when we were thinking about who our ideal romantic partner would be. Right. And it was like these lists. Right? Like, <laughs> I don't think there's I have the like most amazing marriage to cast on scene, the most amazing, original, credible person. I don't think one thing, maybe you said the humor was on the list, but, but you know what I mean? It, it's just, yeah. and I, I think in our, in, and I'm not saying it's not useful. You know, it's like when you flip a coin sure. and say heads is this and tails is that it, sometimes it takes, you know, you flip the coin to know what you actually want, right? To right. know like, Damn, I that, but no, I don't actually want that. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, it turns out I wanted heads and I wouldn't have known it without flipping <laughs> the coin. But so too, like making the list, you know, it can have, you know, great collateral benefits, but it just, in the end, is going to have to come from someplace deeper. Well, I, I have a couple of, uh, a, a little new ground I'd like to embark on in our conversation. Um, and, you know, I think there's a way from you, you, from a child in Dublin to the streets of war-torn Bosnia to the situation room, like to say that that is a, you know, a crazy arc is, um, is a radical understatement. The youngest ambassador to, uh, to the UN, how, um, how has your, own creativity. This is, you know, we talk a lot about creativity and entrepreneurship and being, um, you know, utility and, and how, how has, have those characteristics, because I'm hearing them and everything you're saying is like experimenting and testing and pushing and have, how have they contributed to that incredible arc? You're again, the, the, the youngest, um, ambassador to, to the UN, how did you, how, how had those characteristics of entrepreneurship, resilience, creativity, how did they come into play during that journey? Um, so I think that the, the, this sort of conception of mission drivenness, right? Let's call it that. Um, okay. I think has led me and by, and it sounds kind of, again, too generic, but it's sort of like, depending on what the problem is you're seeking to solve in a moment, my creativity to the degree that I'm able to bring it to bear is derivative. Do you know what I mean? So I'll give you an example. My first book, A Problem from Hell was a long is a long sadly but a long book on american responses to genocide not something you would expect to be much of a page turner and i knew i was an okay writer i'd been a journalist in bosnia and i just i described 
American response to the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, Cambodia, etc., Rwanda. And as I, wa- I wanted to write this book that was a kind of on, a, on one level a manifesto, but but nobody's nobody that I know is ever convinced by a manifesto, right? We're convinced by stories and people and connection and bridges being built between experiential difference of of giant you know proportions and and so as i read the book that i was in the probably took me five years to write the book but the early drafts of the book i read and they were good they were like they read good like brisk moving nonfiction. i was like no who am i going to reach that isn't already interested in this question right and so and the only reason to write a book like this and spend all this time on it is in the hopes that maybe we can, I can make it more of a thing that we don't do enough when genocide is perpetrated abroad and that it's not enough part of our consideration of, of how, whether we give assistance to a foreign government and, and we don't move energetically enough to the United Nations when, like in Rwanda, when people were, were getting murdered at, you know, 800,000 in a hundred days, 800,000 people dying. And so so it was not that I started with this ability to kind of imagine the story that I wanted to tell. It was that I realized I was ineffective given the the objective that I had for the book. And luckily I'd, I've read enough in my life, not, not as near as much as I wish I had read, but, but, you know, I've been enough of a reader where I know what works and I can bring a certain distance from my own, writing, but also I hope I can retain the ability to bring distance to my dis- diplomacy and my and the way I function in government. But at this time, it was more just being kind of an outsider to my own enterprise and just say, saying, this isn't really cutting it. So it turns out in every one of the cases, there were these remarkable characters who had tried to stop genocide, you know, from the Armenian genocide and Henry Morgenthau, our ambassador in Constantinople, to Rwanda, Canadian general, in that case, not American, but Canadian on the ground and, and people within the State Department. And every one of these cases, there were these incredible characters. And so was I creative to then decide to build this story, uh, the, a kind of dark story around these unbelievably inspiring tales? I guess that's kind of what it looks like because it reads now, you really want to know about these people. And then lo and behold, you learn this other thing. And lo and behold, you're mad when you put the book down and you want to do something about it. And so it has had a galvanizing, shockingly galvanizing effect on some. Uh, but to me, it was so much about kind of, it's like the currency. It's like, what does this need to be to be the best and most accessible version of itself? And and when I was UN ambassador as well, you know, where creativity comes in in negotiations is I'm sitting with my Russian counterpart and we're at loggerheads because Vladimir Putin runs Russia <laughs> by and large. That would be the main reason we were at loggerheads. Um, I may not have been easy to deal with either, but but for different reasons. And we have to find the only way we're going to get this resolution through the security council is if we creatively put our heads together and actually get sort of some textual options out there and throw some spaghetti against the wall, making ourselves vulnerable to one another, to, in his case, vulnerable to God knows what in his system. But fundamentally the only way I can be the diplomat that I need to, to bridge these gaps that are going to prevent potentially millions of Syrians from getting food is I actually have to walk in his shoes. I'm like, damn it. 
I do not want to walk in the shoes of Vladimir Putin's representative to the United Nations. Damn it. And yet, how am I, I have to internalize, um, at least to the degree that I have what amounts to almost a literary imagination, right, to be able to do, but I have to think about his constraints and I have to creatively put, you know, take this imaginative leap as we do in great theater, is that right? Where you're, where every character is always right, even the villain, right? That it, the, the best theater would create some complexity and some nuance in who the villain is and where they come from. And, and in this case, he wasn't the villain, but he was the person who was obstructing what I felt we needed to do for, let's say, the Syrian the population of northern Syria. And so that, again, was my mission was to get this resolution negotiated and to get Russian acquiescence, if not support, because they have the veto. My means was on the fly to realize I have to get out of my own shoes and my own skin and I have to do a better job internalizing what he needs or we're just going to be speaking at each other. And so I'm just offering these examples because it, 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 you know, it, I don't think at any point that I would have self-identified as a creative person. Um, you know, when I was writing a memoir and I was trying to think back to my, my days in the pub in Ireland, in Dublin with my dad. And, you know, I, there are people who in writing memoirs can just like, they can, they can have shards of memory and then almost extrapolate because they're so creative. Like I had to go back to the pub. I had to fly to Ireland, like look at the pub, like, you know, remember. And then of course the smells or listen to music from that time. And then it, it can, some of it can come back or go better yet for later years, like look in my journals, which is a horrifying thing to do. I uh, don't recommend it to anybody. Um, even those writing <laughs> memoirs, it's too painful, too terrible. But but that like I I don't have the creativity to to just do it on my own. But then when I'm when I'm brought sort of into that space, I know enough to know that to bridge those distances to meet people where where they are, you can't just give them what you want to say in the way that you know how to say it. You have to think of things from the standpoint of the rival diplomat or of the reader or of the podcast listener, I guess, you know, just how do you, you know, how do you meet people where they are? And then the creativity can flow because it's, it's so driven by that, that need that one has to, to make that connection across great distances often. Yeah. That is the creativity with the capital C, not the subset of art and design and photography and filmmaking, but creativity with the capital C where we're constantly co-creating our environment, the world that we live in. And that was a fantastic example. Um, I remember a, a bit from the book. I just, I pull a little excerpt here. It's from page 522. If anybody cares, uh, any book that has 500 pages, you know, Sorry. it's good. 500, 522. Um, and you're really invoking the concept of storytelling as a mechanism to put yourself in other's shoes and, or, and to bring a storyteller into the environment that you've in your world or parlance in the, in the sort of the diplomatic relationship. And this is um, a woman named Nadia Murad. And you invited Nadia, a 21 year old Yazidi woman to appear before the council. And when she describes how ISIS had executed her mother and six of her nine brothers and then forced her into sexual slavery, her testimony drove home in a very visceral way the savagery that the U.S.-led coalition was working to end. So is this a 
the storytelling component. I mean, we are social animals, right? We are connected, whether we like it or not, by a, a neurology, a history, a past, a present. And it's just, a, I guess, a how do, do you think actively of storytelling, whatever, it seems like to me, whatever line of work you're in, we're going to change the world or get funding for your startup or, you know, um, the role that storytelling plays, it seems so powerful. I'm wondering if you invoke this consciously or is this just a subtext in, you know, what is obviously a very sophisticated set of tools that you've got to, you know, help be successful? Well, it's probably the biggest or the thickest through line in, in every part of my life. So in Ireland, being a little girl in the pub and just hearing the, the stories, <laughs> the tall tales being told upstairs, you know, with the stench of Guinness around me and, or, you know, to try to get a word in edgewise at an Irish dinner table, like you can't lose the plot, right? You got to have the arc, the characters have to, then to being an actual journalist and, and to go from, you know, Bosnia where, as I said earlier in our discussion, just, it's, it's just not enough to describe the tragedy that's unfolding in front of you. You have to do it in a way that's, that's really searching out details, like the most precise little detail that is going to travel, that is going to resonate. And that, and that means not only getting caught up in, as it happens in that instance, a conflict zone that you're living in, but staying plugged into who your readers are. And, 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 and that, uh, there were occasions when I would lose that, right? I'd be so in the place I was in that it would be my editor who would bring me back to earth and just say, you know what people are dealing with here? You know what just happened? Or, um, and so I think just that's really important to bear in mind, right? I mean, for lack of a better expression, it's like know your audience, but that's, that's too general. It's, 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 it's really keeping current and keeping curious about what's motivating the people that you're trying to reach, which of course it, with newspapers or magazines is hard because it's a broad group and there's not one gestalt out there. But, but that was the storytelling I did as a writer. And then I would go on to do longer magazine pieces, for example, about the genocide in Darfur, where again, trying to find what, what this is such a foreign phenomenon in this desert area in Western Sudan and these tribal names that people are not going to be familiar with. And so, so what are the resonances that, that, that one can find? Well, it turns out the film Hotel Rwanda had come out and, and it was a, a big hit and people cared about what Don Cheadle thought about things and, and, you know, how, how were there dimensions of that film? Are there p characters and people that I can find in this context that will, will resonate with, with what film goers, I mean, I know it sounds crazy. It's like the tail wagging the dog, but just, but just connections that, that it's such, these distances are so vast. And I think we're our own worst enemies. If we just think that again, because something matters to me, that it's necessarily gonna, it may matter, but it just may not rise on the mattering map among many other things that matter. so the question is like, how do you elevate things? And then in the job, as you, as you know, I, I would do a couple things. I mean, the first was shockingly at the UN as ambassador, I learned 
and I, I knew kind of going in, but it was weird to experience it that that the kind of culture is one where people actually think that by reading prepared talking points about kind of what should be done, that that is going to change someone's mind. And it just isn't ever, right? I mean, it it just because to, for me to say you should do this, and then they say you should do this, and then we're, well, where the hell are we? So there, what I would do is is really try to track down individuals, and often, and uh, you know, I had a speechwriter who was my partner, Nick Steinberg, in in much of this, but often it would entail actually reaching out to like a refugee camp or to the spouse of, of somebody who'd been disappeared, or you know, where what you're presenting it's not enough to just tell a story, right? It's, it's, if people feel that it's fresh or that it's authentic. And when I traveled to bring into the security council, this kind of antiseptic chamber, the stories of the people that I'd met and, and it, it doesn't change the world, but it punctures this bubble, which too many of us, you know, depending on the issue are able to inhabit, but the more important thing, and I think, I hope a legacy, uh, sort of step that we took when, when I was UN ambassador that I think has lived on in maybe to a lesser extent, but I think can easily be revived is forget about me. <laughs> Why am I the best storyteller? And the example you gave is, is a vivid testament to this. My job can be to use my platform and my leverage and, and the tentacles that the United States has with the, their, to mix metaphors, the capillaries out in the world to connect with people who should be able to tell their own stories. And so in the Ebola crisis, having a health worker who was on the front lines in Liberia be the one to say to the Security Council, I had to turn away these families today. And when I turn away a family and they're carrying a child who they want to, to get care here, they're going to, not only is that child going to die, but that man, that father who's carried the child is going to bring the infection back into his house and we can relate to this now in new ways because of COVID, but when you don't have enough beds to isolate people and to keep them in, in, in quarantine and to treat them, it just means that it's just going to spread exponentially in these ways. And for him to tell that story just by video conference, for him to, to offer this first person testimonial, for Nadia to tell the story of what it meant for ISIS to come to her village for her and her family. I mean, let me get out of the way. Right. And I think too often, especially if you represent a powerful country, you know, you think you have to mediate everything. But the greatest power, I think, is in is in those voices. And and so I think to give to use the what influence we have to create those platforms, um, that's how I think you can really create those human connections where it's I mean, how can you and, you know, Russia might be saying, oh, that's fake news or that's this or that. And then you have the doctor who's actually cared for chemical weapon survivors. I mean, you're going to say to the doctor that it's fake news when he's just, when he's choked up describing what it was like to to hold a child who'd been gassed by the Assad regime. So it's it can be very very uh, powerful, but you'd be surprised at how at how rarely it's done or how people think I'm going to tell a story now, but it's a kind of recycled story or it's you you, you know you know even in meeting new people when when someone is telling a story. And it's coming from someplace deep within them versus, okay, this is story 16B, you know, like it's just different. And, and I think people know the difference. We know the difference, right? So why do we expect other people are going to think that recycled stories are, are compelling? 
uh, I want to um, be vulnerable and try not to humble brag at the same time, but in a world, the best that I can relate to your world is I had the good fortune of being a guest at the State Department one time uh, to Jamaica. And it was in connection, there's a, you know, trying to stimulate the economy there. Um, and there's a center for entrepreneurship Branson had started. And um, I was prepared to go there to tell stories of entrepreneurship and thought that was my job as a representative of the United States to go and to inspire and to tell stories and to, well, humble pie, like my stories were nothing <laughs> compared to the stories that I ended up being able to bring back about to share with right. people that were in my community about, uh, you've got it hard, you know, raising money, getting your startup off the ground, launching your photography business. Resilience, right? You're like preaching, oh, I, let me talk to you in Jamaica about resilience. And they're like, mm. It, it was, yeah. it was the most, it was an amazing piece of humble pie. And, um, and I can only imagine how much that affects you to be the sort of the, the arbiter or the, you know, that you're carrying these stories back to the people who are in a position to, to help or affect change. Uh, it just feels like a tremendous sense of responsibility. And so as you know, that's my one little state department story, but to oh, connect it back to what, yeah. But what is your, like that, that job that you have seems so, so huge. And so this is a thank you. Uh, appreciate you for doing that on a daily basis. And I want to fast forward if we can, because you've, you've hinted at it a couple of times and I want to sort of crescendo our conversation today with um, as much as we can talk about the, what appears to be a, an opportunity at a next chapter for you, having been a journalist who in many ways was critical of us foreign policy. And then you end up being in a position to make and shape and construct and, um, be the, you know, an usher, if you will, um, in, in, um, president Obama's cabinet. And, uh, can you share with us sort of the recent news that you're, you're looking at, um, in the next chapter? Yes. I mean, thrillingly, dauntingly, uh, president Biden has asked me to be the administrator of USAID, which is the world's largest development agency. So it has responsibility for, for example, the public health, US support for public health responses in developing countries to the COVID crisis. Now that economic gains in so many countries have been set back maybe two decades because of COVID, helping think through what are the jobs programs, how can we spur work together to spur economic growth in these places. It's the agency that contributes vast resources to dealing with humanitarian emergencies like that in Ethiopia or Syria or Yemen or Venezuela, just to take a few examples. It should be the agency, and I think is hopefully, if I'm lucky enough to get into the job, I have to be confirmed by the Senate first, but um, it should play a major role in working with our partners to build resilience to climate shocks, which of course are going to be uh, so much more prevalent uh, in the coming years. And we know, for example, what California has dealt with in terms of forest fires. We know about flooding in Houston and Miami and, and everywhere. We know what farmers are going through in our country in terms of droughts uh, because of climate change. Imagine all of that on top of not having 
even basic health infrastructure, uh, as, as many poor countries lack, or if they had it now, it's been shattered by what's happened over the, the course of the pandemic. So um, the last thing I'd say about it, which sort of graphs more onto my background in, in uh, human rights, is there every year is a little bit less freedom <laughs> in the world. And we're seeing a lot of democratic backsliding. We're, we're most familiar with our own right attacks on the media and questions about the legitimacy of opposition politics and conspiracy theories and misinformation and how that can fuel um, even extremism and violence. That's happening in many, many parts of the world. And so working with the rest of the Biden administration to think through what, what's our answer, um, particularly when China is very ambitious, opening its checkbook and you know, providing tech surveillance tools that allow governments to be more repressive. What's our answer to the decline in human rights enjoyment around the world? Well, and apart from the humanitarian and the development needs Fundamentally, if you can't hold your government accountable, it's hard to get the economic pieces right, right? And it's hard to deal with corruption and, and often what inhibits development. So it's a big team. It's about 10,000 people. Uh, so there'll be many more management and leadership challenges and opportunities than, than I've dealt with before. So, th so this conversation is actually really useful, right? Because you, you do learn that given how busy one gets and how bandwidth how scarce bandwidth becomes so quickly, whatever your job is, that it's the period before you leap, you know, where you kind of develop that intentionality and, and really think through, um, you know, how you're going to get the most out of learning from the team of amazing civil servants and foreign service officers who've been there for years, who have so much to learn from. And then to bring also, though, an outsider's perspective about what this moment of interlocking crises demands from us. Um, and part of it will be, you know, selling it to the private sector and entrepreneurs, selling it to the American people and selling kind of sounds a little bit crude, but just enlisting and, and recognizing that given, you know, things weren't great before because of climate change and, and some structural issues with the economy, but, but given what COVID and the economic fallout from COVID have done, this is not going to be one government agency or 20 government agencies. It's it's going to be all hands on deck uh, if we're going to crack the code here and, and get people back on their feet and self-reliant, which is what all of us want. We want it for ourselves and our families. And and um, so no, nobody wants USAID assistance per se. What they want is the ability to have agency over their own lives and, and, um, and to be able to enjoy basic rights and justice. So I maybe get to be a part of that. And, and it's, it's, uh, I think, you know, I, I use the term when in some of my prior work, a bystander, you know, like sometimes in the last four years, I've, I, as I've noted, I have felt like there are these displacement crisis, the climate crisis, the democracy crisis, the racial injustice crisis, so many things. And, and to have the opportunity potentially to harness more than just my own thoughts and, and, and to work with the team at USAID, but the, the broader team of public servants who've, who've gone back in and to find ways to even, again, broaden the conception of who the team is to bring in outside actors and, and citizens and so forth. I, you know, it feels like the, the right time um, to, 
to salute and, and show up and serve. And I just feel really lucky that I got the call. You're, um, Speaking of getting the call, I love how in, in your book you opened up with being in a crowded cafe and receiving a call from President then President Obama. That's a lovely story. You know, there's both the actual call and then there's the metaphorical call. Um, yeah. And you, you, you're a fantastic storyteller. And um, again, I'd encourage folks to pick up the paperback. Comes out. Um, I think it's you know right about when we're trying to drop this. Uh, the education of an idealist, a memoir. And I will say my, um, just, there is a thread of just something that's as big as government, even or a big, as big as a, as a company, uh, an Apple or a Google, or, you know, it's just, how do you trust something that is so sort of big and, and, um, I, you know, I think it's fair for the, there's a disconnect between the individual and this sort of trust and, you know, talking to you, reading your book, I, I confess, I also had a, have had the opportunity on a few occasions to be a guest to the White House. And so many of the smartest, most articulate, heartfelt, earnest people have been in these roles that are, you know, as civil servants. And just that part gives me so much hope. Uh, and when you think of government with a capital G and, and here I am standing in on my fuzzy rug on a, you know, in front of a computer screen in Seattle, you, you know, it's just, you, it's hard to capture that, but thank you for, for providing a human, humane, human, um, real heartfelt, earnest look into the people that are working for, on, on our behalf on the biggest, most challenging problems of our times. And so to that end, uh, and to the end of to the point of your humanity, hi historically, I wouldn't ask this question because um, if um, I, it's about your motherhood and, um, you know, if, if you were uh, and one of the reasons I wouldn't ask this is because if you were a, a, a male, I think it's historically that wouldn't be like, how was fatherhood in your and so I wouldn't I wouldn't historically go here, but I've, I was drawn to a piece in the Atlantic where you spoke so overtly about your motherhood and the role it played in shaping and, you know, just, um, the value that it brought to the, the lens that you have on your job and your life. And, um, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the role that your motherhood has played in this process. My, my, my motherhood is, is, uh, <laughs> has, <laughs> has come back into, into play. No, no, no. I'm in the interview love. Uh, but I'll come find you. That, that's that's what motherhood looks I, like. I pr Excellent. I love it. Uh, very, very well timed. It's, it's the, the the timing there is impeccable. The fact that we've I realize we've as long as a modern miracle. But um, so so uh, what I would say is that um, you know I think hopefully just by virtue of the experiences out in the world, you know, before I got to these big institutions, I was able to identify, I hope, I hope I was able to identify, for example, with the people I was interviewing in Bosnia back in the day or in Darfur. Um, but to the degree that there were any limits to my imagination, I do think being a mother of two um, young kids now 11 and eight, but when I was in my prior job, uh, you know, they were much, much younger. I had both of them while I was working at the white house in Obama's first term, but it does make you just say to yourself, gosh, what would it be like to not 
be able to, and then fill in the blank, right? To not be able to assure your child at night that they were going to make it through the night given chemical weapons attacks or to not be able to tell them that they would have um, a meal the next day. And I don't mean to be melodramatic about it, but it just, it gets to the, the point that we've made a couple times about, about just feeling privileged and lucky and knowing how blessed I am. I think it's very motivating, right? To have kids and to, to just that the duty of care that we feel and that we feel so privileged to be able to, deliver on when we can, but to just imagine what it would be like to, to feel all that same love and then not be able to provide the kind of security across the board that, that kids, I mean, when you have kids, you just, they're, that's the word, you know, whatever it, whether it means a blankie or a Teddy or just when are you coming home, mom, security broadly defined is, is what they, they long for. And, and so I think it, in that sense, being able to be in a position to enhance that potentially, you know, drawing on, on the pool of incredibly talented people already doing the work in the U.S. government, in the U.N. and beyond. But personally, it's also, as I grappled with, and it, you're kind of, you ask the question gently, but it has been this question of, of, you know, going into a big job like this requires being you know, less of a little league coach, um, and less of a soccer coach for my daughter. And, and that's a, that's a loss for them. And it's a loss, a big loss for me at the same time to be able to come home at night and say, you know, this is what we're doing on climate change. This is actually what we're doing. Is it enough? No. Is it going to stop the kinds of things that you're seeing? And, and is it going to address the plight of the polar bear, which my daughter asked me about, about once a week? No, it's not. Not in the short term, but um, but to have an answer and to and to be able to say this is how I spent my day on the things that are going to matter most for you and your generation and your kids and grandkids, as well as for those people who live far away. So so that's how I've I've thought about going back in is bringing them into into the conversation, hoping to make them feel like they're part of this team effort, this all hands on deck effort, because they're the ones who, who sacrifice in a way more, more than I will. Um, and if I could just maybe end with something you said about the flesh and blood, like who government officials actually are. I mean, this was one reason, you know, I was you in the sense, and I was maybe many of your listeners where I was the outsider who went in and then you've described like having various guests, guests on who've been in public service in different ways. I had done that interviewing from the outside, some of it, but going in and looking around and saying, this isn't what people think government is, right? This isn't, it doesn't, it like, even in the movies, right? Maybe West Wing gave you some romantic sense of it, but, but just the, the sort of, it's not that the outcomes are always great or that the judgments are even always great, but the sort of integrity of purpose and the level of expertise, you know, whether at the Environmental Protection Agency or at the Defense Department or at the language expertise that I drew on when I was UN ambassador. So I thought if we can, but also the humor, the black humor sometimes, but, but you know, the, that sense of exhilaration that can come when you feel that people are kind of rowing in the same direction or that you are making the difference that you've sought, to, at least a fraction of the difference that you sought to make. I mean, it is... It's not what people think about. And to be honest, now 
we have to rebuild a lot of these institutions because there's been a lot of attrition. There are major kind of morale issues and we need to draw from untraditional pools of people. We need to recruit to come into government, whether in political appointments or in civil service appointments. People are going to actually shift from having maybe invented something out there to being willing to bring that entrepreneurial and creative spirit, you know, into bureaucracies. Like who wants to join a bureaucracy? Well, I think that actually bureaucracy isn't what it's reputed to be. I mean, at least again, if you have the kind of leadership that wants to harness um, the, the talents of the individuals within it, which I think we, we really do going forward. And so it's almost a plug you know, for people who've never, who've always thought that creation has to come outside large institutions, but that I've just seen firsthand that when you marry that outsider perspective with some of that expertise and experience that has lived within these institutions, like pretty electric and very much impactful things can happen. So, um, you know, I just hope we can bring more people into the fold and demystify a little bit what what it is that goes on there yeah the the my time in jamaica uh, under the ambassador luis morena he uh i got to speak at length with him and he was one of the people who was on his way out because the, he couldn't stomach the the experience that was happening within the department and our need to sort of refuel um across so many different differently as, as biden says build back better right so it's like what is mm-hmm. Had we just kept going, we would have been tweaking here and incremental this and that. And now there is an opportunity to just really broaden the conversation of 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 who belongs and of what the identity of these institutions is. I think it's, I mean, it's like many crises, right? We find opportunity in it, but there's a big one. <laughs> I, I'm like, I grew up taking pictures of me and my friends skateboarding. Why am I in the, what am I doing in the White House here? But that's that inclusive. That's part of the story that I was hoping would come out of our conversation today. The And thank you so much for sharing uh, so many insights, your journey from, a, um, as you said, the the Irish pub um, to, you know, the halls of, to the, to journalism, to the halls of government. And now, um, in the role that you're, uh, excitedly stepping into, I wish you all, all the best. Thank you for your storytelling, your heartfelt, your humanity, um, and helping us see that, that we, this is something that we can believe in and how you use your creativity, your entrepreneurial spirit, your belief in yourself, uh, and others. So thank you for being on the show. Super, super grateful. And, um, if there's anything I can ever do to help the help, help just um, I'm a text away. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, anything else I can do? Do you want to sign off? What's the best place? In addition to just buying the book, because it's it is truly fantastic, and it's a it really is. I'm not not trying to suck up here, but the education of idealist uh, of an idealist, a memoir. Again, uh, Ambassador Samantha Power. Anything? Where, where can people find you if they want to? You know, what's the best place in addition to buying the book if they want to know more or follow I'm along? On, I'm on Twitter. I'm more of a, a tweeter than a than a Facebooker. Um, and uh, so Twitter, we'll we'll all have government accounts soon. But I have a personal account there <laughs> where I sound off on various issues, and I have a website for when I'm. But that's more for when I'm out of government and touring and speaking and engaging young people again. I, I can't wait to do that. And I hope to do more of it from, from aid. So I don't know if you can also follow when I'm confirmed, you can take nothing for granted in this political environment, Chase, so we can't get ahead of ourselves. But 
if in fact I get to become a USAID administrator, follow the agency. It's doing such amazing work around the world. Thank you. There's so many people interested in social justice, in um, climate change, in uh, so many of the issues that you've spoken about today. Uh, thank you and Godspeed, all the best and you, grateful Jay. for your time today. Thanks so much. And yours. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. All right, that is a wrap. But before you go, hey, I wanted to say thank you so much. And I do note that many of you have asked how you can help me out there in the world. And I have a great answer for that. And it is sharing this show. Um, my goal is I create this content with a, with a talented, hardworking crew over here at Creative Live. And our goal is to get this information out there to the world, help the, the greatest creators and, and entrepreneurs of our time get their ideas spread far and wide. So you sharing your takeaways or just links to the show, any of the podcast platforms or whatever means the world to me. Thing two, how you can help if you care is to leave a review at your preferred podcast platform. That also helps surface uh, this show, the guests uh, in, in search results on each of the platforms. And it means a lot. So thank you so much. Really, really grateful. And I'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode, hopefully soon, maybe next, maybe right after this, maybe you're going to listen Anyway, whenever you get around to it, I'm here. Thank you.